the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You put together anti-Semitism, racism, slavery, colonialism, sexism. The treatment of gay people by the church moved from, oh, this is a sexual ethics issue, to this is an example of Christian injustice. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the one Cast. All of the passages except for Jesus going back to Genesis were pretty marginal for dealing with the LGBT question. Hello, welcome back to the 180 cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. As usual, I'm super pumped to be here because we have another very interesting 180 to talk about. Over the past several episodes, you might have noticed that I have been making a more concerted effort to seek out and bring people on the podcast, um, people who provide the quote-unquote opposite 180 from ones that we have already put on the podcast, which have generally swung in a more conservative direction. And these these sort of opposite 180s... Um, the ones that swing toward a more progressive or liberal stance are some of my favorite, favorite interviews to do. They're really fun for me. They're challenging. I learn a lot. And hopefully, they build bridges between people of various viewpoints so that we can all engage in a more friendly way and from a position of greater understanding. And really, that's that's the vision that I have for this podcast, that by hearing people explain how they changed their mind in a long-form interview context, that we can then approach any position from the right or the left equipped with ideas and arguments that aren't strawman arguments, that aren't contrived, that aren't shallow or just uninformed, but ones we know are valid because we've taken the time to really listen and uh, to listen to people who have sincerely been on both sides of an issue. And as you can tell from the title of this episode, we have another of just that sort of interview today. Back in, way back in episode five, um, we had Katie Faust from Them Before Us on the podcast to discuss um, why she supports traditional marriage, even though her, her mother committed to a woman when she was just a teenager, and both of those women are still very big parts of her life. Um, she is a Christian, but she didn't approach this this topic really from the Christian perspective or, or directly from the Bible, but more from a secular ethical perspective, sort of looking at it um, in terms of how things affect children. But today, 
today. We have someone who is an ethicist, a Christian ethicist, and has spent a great deal of time and energy on the subject and has come to an opposite conclusion on that and the more broader question of inclusion in the church for the LGBT community. So his perspective does involve what he understands the Bible to be saying and does involve directly the the Christian faith tradition and how Christians, um, how he believes that they should approach the LGBT question. Uh, My guest has authored or edited about two dozen books, including Righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust, Moral Leadership for a Divided Age, Kingdom Ethics, The Sacredness of Human Life, and Changing Our Mind, which is a book on LGBT inclusion in the church, in which he admits he was wrong on the issue. He holds a PhD in Christian Ethics from Union Theological Seminary, has been a professor at Mercer, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and uh, Union University. Dr. David Gushy, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, It's an honor to be on your podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, It's an honor to have you. Um, Before we get started, don't forget that you can subscribe to the podcast to stay updated. We release a new episode every Friday. We alternate between these long-form interviews and then more like newsy opinion episodes where we analyze um, some takeaways from the latest interview and uh, we can see basically what we can learn about how people change their minds in addition to talking about news and other fun stuff. So if you have a friend or two who would find this episode of interest, you know, you can just click that little share icon and send it their way. And with that, let us get into this topic. Um, Dr. Gushy, I usually like to start from the very beginning because that's usually how stories work and everybody's got a story. So you used to espouse the traditional view of marriage, even in some of your written published work. Could you take me back to that mindset? Why did you hold to that view? What were your reasons if somebody asked you back then, well, well why, why do you hold to the traditional um, sexual, Christian sexual ethic about um, sexes between a man and a woman um, in the covenant relationship of marriage, etc.? What reasons would you give? Um, the, uh, the approach I had grounded and still does ground uh, sexuality in uh, or sexual expression in marriage. Um, and I also, I did a book on divorce, uh, and I, I take very seriously the permanence of marriage, which is an issue that has kind of dropped off of the landscape. So True. probably, a, you know, a complete statement of my ethic would have been that um, both adults and the children who are raised by adults need the stability and permanence of lifetime marriage, covenant. I, I do a lot with covenant, lifetime covenant marriage, um, in which they uh, make promises to each other that they keep um, for their own health and stability and wholeness and for the well-being of the children who they are raising. Um, and um, I assumed from my reading of scripture and tradition that the only uh, legitimate kind of adult sexual relationship was that between a man and a woman. Uh, There's a whole lot of discussion about, you know, premarital sex and how much of it is legitimate if, you know, or is any of it legitimate? You know, I pretty much took the traditional view that even though it's very difficult to remain 
uh, chaste outside of marriage, that marriage remains the place for a variety of reasons uh, where sex is supposed to happen. So it was grounded in scripture and tradition. It was covenantal, it was marital, emphasized permanence. And uh, I assumed, and I think assumption is an important word there, I assumed that scripture and tradition both were unequivocal, that it could only happen between a male and a female. So what would you point to at that time? If somebody was like, well, show me where in the Bible it it says this, like, would you go to like Romans 1 or Leviticus or what? Yeah, I tried to operate mainly from uh, Jesus's teachings and because my ethic uh, and my biblical hermeneutic focuses on Jesus. But, But even though Jesus didn't speak directly, probably didn't speak directly about uh, homosexuality. There is um, the pivotal teaching about divorce in Matthew 19 and Mark 10, uh, in in which um, Jesus quotes Genesis, um, God made them male and female, and a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh. It's, It's a teaching that's actually about divorce, and the focus is to the to men especially, uh, don't break up your marriages uh, on flimsy grounds, or actually maybe even don't break them up on any grounds. And um, but I assumed that because Jesus quoted Genesis, that if you then go back to Genesis, you have the Genesis account, Adam and Eve, and uh, so the combination of Jesus and Jesus quoting Genesis it was central. The the other passages, I always had concerns about. I mean, Leviticus is a death penalty passage, and Sodom and Gomorrah is a gang rape passage, and um, Romans is a, a kind of murky but you know quite dark passage in which same-sex activity appears to be thrown in there with every, every kind of vicious and evil behavior. I, I, I didn't like Romans 1. I didn't quote it much, if at all. But it was really Jesus going back to Genesis. It was that that paradigm. So how did your opinion begin to change on this? I know that you wrote in the opening pages of your book that there was like a moment where it crystallized for you, that your mind had changed. But what led you up to that point? Um, it's such a great question, and I'm really glad that you've structured a whole podcast around this because mind-changing and heart-changing is a very interesting thing. And for me, it was very gradual. Um, I, I never had the hateful, sneering, kind of demagogue kind of uh, approach to homosexuality or same-sex relationships. Uh, there were plenty of people around me who did. I remember when I taught at Southern Baptist Seminary in the early 90s, uh, the president of the school um, offered interviews regularly and statements in which, from Romans 1, he claimed that same-sex activity was like the ultimate sin, um, ultimate sign of perversity. That's how he read Romans 1. And, and, and so the ratcheting up of uh, contempt and hatefulness towards gay, gay people I always thought was wrong. I never was there, and I never spoke in that language. But um, so, so the fact that people who were on my side, I thought, were participating in hatefulness, um, 
that uh, that was a concern from the beginning of my career. And I, everybody knew about Westover Baptist Church and the God hates whatever signs and, and all of that. And that was horrible. But I thought that, you know, that could be sharply delineated from a kind of a gentle, um, you know, sorry, it's not okay, but, you know, God loves you anyway, kind of. Uh, the love compassion. the sinner, love the sinner, uh, hate the sin basically, paradigm. Yeah, basically. Although I never really use that language either because unleashing people to hate sin, uh, I thought was also problematic. Um, so what began to change? Um, I would say one thing in the pre-change period is when I taught at Southern Baptist Seminary and when I taught at Union University in West Tennessee, um, I never met an out gay person, LGBT person of any type. Everybody was closeted. Hmm. And, and um, because, uh, because it was unthinkable in that environment. And then when I moved to Mercer, uh, and uh, Northeast Atlanta, um, I met out gay Christians, gay and lesbian Christians, for the first time uh, at my seminary where I was teaching seminary students. Not, a, not many, but a few. Uh, and notably at my local church where, I, where we planted our family in 2007. Um, and when I started a Bible study class, some came to join my class. And so for the first time, I met like a lesbian couple that had an adopted daughter. And um, a few years later, a gay couple, vibrant evangelical Christians um, and, and uh, others. Um, and eventually, somewhere in that journey, not too long after I moved to Atlanta, my youngest sister came out as a lesbian. Uh, it took her a long time. She was in her 30s. Um, so, upper 30s. So... But I, it's important to say that uh, meeting people, it did not begin with my sister. It began with others. And the, the experience of seeing vibrant, passionate, faithful Christians who were also gay, lesbian, and bi, a little bit later, trans too, um, shook the paradigm. Because the language of the Bible especially Romans and Leviticus. And if you look at a passage in 1 Corinthians 6 as well, the language um, in those passages treats people who act on gay and lesbian sexuality as perverse, wicked, uh, going to hell, anti-God. And that language did not fit the reality of the lives of the people that I was encountering. And then I learned that that language had routinely been deployed to deeply wound the people that I was now encountering. And they were members of my church family. And uh, so these were people that I was seeing routinely, uh, weekly, if not more. I, you know, we were, I was developing deep friendships um, for the first time. Also, I should tell you about a particular encounter that... Um, that happened around 2008, maybe, um, a man named Mitchell Gold, who is uh, a furniture um, magnate uh, of Golden Williams Furniture, um, uh, had just released a book or was about to release a book called Crisis. And it, it was about 
40 stories of people, some of them celebrities, who had been raised in conservative religious environments and were LGBT, and about their suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he asked if he could come see me in Atlanta. He looked me up. He had read my book, Righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust, that you mentioned. And righteous Gentiles were people who stood against the cultural tide to rescue Jews during the Holocaust. And he said he, he was Jewish, and Mitchell said over lunch, I'll never forget it, that he was very inspired by that book. And he was asking me to be a righteous Gentile when it came to gay people. He said, I think the implications of your position uh, you have not fully considered when it comes to LGBT people. So would you please read my book, and then could we stay in touch? And so um, that was a proactive contact from a national leader and I did read his book, and I was deeply struck by it, including his own story. And that fed in there with the people that I was also meeting locally to lead me to think that there was something wrong here. Something was not fitting and needed to be reconsidered. Okay, so where did you, where did you go from there in terms of looking back and reevaluating the way that you had interpreted the traditional Christian sexual ethic? Where did you come down in terms of like, aha, I found the evidence, I've, I found the proof that this is the way that we're supposed to be treating the LGBT community? Um, that also was a process. If we're talking about, let's say we're talking about a four-year process from around 2007, 2008, until 2012, there was a mile marker in 2012. My denomination, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, which is the spinoff, a spinoff denomination from the Southern Baptists, but the CBF has been unwilling to take a definitive position on LGBT inclusion. But they asked, or were at least willing, to co-sponsor a national conference with me uh, that we held at my church, First Baptist Decatur, in the spring, I think it was, of 2012. It was called a conference on sexuality and covenant, and uh, fairly bold for CBF. We were allowed to invite all kinds of people, including LGBT people, to speak. And um, I remember at that conference realizing that I was no longer able to affirm the traditional position, but I was not yet able to articulate an alternative. And so at that point, I was kind of brokering a conversation. And in 2012, that's, I mean, that conversation itself was pretty risky, but we did it. Um, By the spring of 2014, I felt that I needed to think through this issue from the ground up without being constrained by the fear of rejection. Um, And so I I launched into a, a series of articles, blog posts, basically, for the Baptist media that I, I, had a, I had a column and a lot of freedom. I could just put it on the page and it would run. And so the book, Changing Our Mind, was the compilation mainly of these articles, one after another, that began in the summer of 2014. And it's hard to describe, but from a religious perspective, I would have to say I, I felt inspired, kind of, uh, to use an even more religious word, anointed, that I was being given the words to say and that I was being given a boldness to explore these issues. 
And so I just kind of took it one step at a time. If you've looked at the book, you know, uh, what, what is homosexuality? Uh, uh, what do we know about it? How many are there? Um, what do we know about the difference between orientation, attraction, action? Uh, just basic stuff. Uh, what do we know about how the church has positioned itself? Um, and so kind of some preliminary stuff like that. And then I began digging into the Bible passages. You know, the Sodom and Gomorrah story, the Leviticus passage, every, every passage that was relevant. And I concluded that all of the passages, except for Jesus going back to Genesis, were pretty marginal for dealing with the LGBT question. Leviticus had the marginal posture of being an obscure law in an obscure set of laws that Christians generally ignore from the Old Testament. And how do we relate the Old Testament to the New Testament? Generally, the Old Testament laws are set aside or, or hardly studied. Um, so that wasn't too relevant. And then the Sodom and Gomorrah story was a story about the attempted gang rape of angels. Uh, kind of odd story. And, and, um, and elsewhere in the Bible, when Sodom and Gomorrah is discussed, the gang rape piece is not discussed. Uh, the overall evil of the city is the idea, including its inhospitality, which was a major ancient Near Eastern moral teaching. Romans, the Romans passage... Uh, always struck me as odd, and I think what I argued and did a lot of digging around that what Paul is doing in Romans is making a kind of a caricature of pagan sinfulness, especially focusing on the vices of of uh, the Roman court and Roman Roman pow powerful Roman men basically trying to have sex with anything that moved because they could, and it was about exploitation and debauchery. And, uh, and then there was one passage in 1 Corinthians 6. The, uh, uh, it's about how a term is translated and a lot of debate about how a term is translated. So in the end, it comes down to, to Jesus. Is that, the, is that the passage Genesis. where it says something like, as such, some of you were, and yeah. then it lists homosexuality in there? Okay. Though the, the words, uh, the two words back to back, uh, malakoi and arsenokotoi, uh, have been translated different ways in different times and using uh so uh the word it was used sodomite um but in, earlier in king james it was effeminate the best anyway so so there's a lot of technical stuff there but i didn't think it was it was uh as compelling as uh, certainly as sometimes people had made it to be and that bible translations had a lot to do with it so you're talking about six or seven passages and four or five of them can be knocked out as as questionable, debatable, marginal. And so then I, I really, for me, the big theological hurdle was what to make of what I ended up calling the creation, kind of the creation paradigm. God made them male and female. Mm -hmm. And then Jesus ratifies that, it seems, in um, when he talks about it. And... And here I had to do the most work, and I had to think, I paused, I had to, had to linger for a while. And it has to do partly with what we make of that Genesis story. Um, what's going on in Genesis? What, is the, what are the authors, or is the author trying to accomplish? And, and then it looks to me like the author is trying to accomplish, among other things, a kind of a, a mythic picture 
of a primal perfection. There's just a man and just a woman, and and they're wandering around naked. They're basically childlike, and um, and then sin enters the picture, and then everything goes wrong. I also read some in Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my heroes, who taught, who warned about overusing Genesis one and two. Uh, it's kind of a prehistory. The history that we know is the history of fallen humanity that happens after Genesis 3. Mm-hmm. But then the other piece I, I, I drew in is the number of examples in which theologians and church people had misread Genesis 1 and 2 uh, and some other passages in Genesis uh, to to harm, in the end, to harm people like well, the Genesis 9 passage, or the Genesis 10, I believe, where uh, you have the story of Shem, Ham, and Japheth looking upon uh, Ham, looking upon his father's nakedness, became became grounds for uh, slavery and segregation because Ham was supposedly the ancestor of the of the Africans. Um, and and uh, Genesis 1 and 2 had routinely been read to subjugate women because Eve was treated as the subordinate to, to Adam. Mm-hmm. And, but, but also, the idea is that we have these texts that say there's a man and a woman and they're only with each other, but we also have these human beings who are also males and females, but who were just not made to have sex with each other. Their, 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 their attraction is to members of the same sex irremediably. And every effort to cure them of that, quote-unquote, brings disaster on their lives. So I basically ended up saying that we must read Genesis 1 and 2 as kind of primeval myth, essentially, and, and that we must read it in light of science, what science tells us about real people, and in light of what real people tell us about themselves. And that our picture of how God created the world actually needs more diversity and complexity to it than a literal reading of Genesis 1 and 2 provides. And that was the theological Rubicon for me. Once I was able to make that move, then everything else fell into place for me. So can you explain a little bit about that moment where it finally crystallized? What was what was going on around you where it finally just you know, it, it clicked into place that this was now your perspective. Um, it's, you know, how do, how do scholars process stuff? You know, I was reading, I was reading scientific studies about like, I was reading what the American Psychological Association says about same-sex orientation, you know, and I was still in deep community with my friends and at church and at school and reading Bible commentaries and um, thinking about my sister. I also, I also um, have thought more in retrospect that wh- while I was writing that book, my mother was dying and she was so dear to me. And I, in one sense, I think I was in a emotionally very um, uh, responsive, reachable, some might say fragile place. Um, but I think it made me more um, open to radical change. Mom was a conservative Catholic who learned to accept 
that the church is teaching about people like her own youngest daughter could not could not stand that it could not be accepted that the reality of my sister's makeup must be taken seriously and um she must not be denied the love of her family and the love of a potential partner just because she's lesbian and so mom having made that transition which i thought was quite brave on her part uh was also a a factor and she was dying so that was there too um but i also once once i thought huh maybe the church has been wrong about this then all of my training kicked in related to a critical reading of church history and other moments in which the church had been wrong and of course my dissertation was on the holocaust which which is inconceivable apart from nearly 2,000 years of Christian anti-Semitism um, and anti-Semitism, Christian anti-Semitism that contributed on the ground to the deaths of millions during the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the church's historic uh, subjugation and mistreatment of women, and I had been in the middle of the fight among Southern Baptists over whether women should be allowed to be pastors, and I, and I, I, I believe that the church's sexism was wrong. I also was aware of uh, the history of colonialism and um, the way the church ratified uh, every kind of barbarism during the colonial days. And uh, as a Southerner and a Southern Baptist uh, for a long time, the history of Southern Christian racism, including the defense of slavery. And so you put together anti-Semitism, racism, slavery, colonialism, sexism, the treatment of gay people by the church slotted now. It moved from, oh, this is a sexual ethics issue to this is, a, this is an example of Christian injustice in the name of the Bible. Seen that before, and it went over there. It moved over there, and that cemented it for me. What, how would you argue then with people who adhere or say they adhere to sola scriptura? And in which case they might say, yes, we see what you're saying about the history of the church and all that stuff was really terrible. And their argument would be, well, if you go to the Bible, if you go to the authoritative source, it wouldn't support what those people back then were doing. And it doesn't support your position now? How do you engage with those people? Um, at first, I attempted to engage with them by uh, just going text by text and hashing it out, right? So now we have our big argument about First Corinthians 6, and now we have our big argument about Romans 1 and, and, and so on. And I think uh, my position can do pretty well um, uh, of course, if you take cultural context seriously and if you're willing to have um, some fresh thinking about those specific texts. But, but what has evolved for me is a greater clarity that nobody is just doing sola scriptura. Everybody, everybody reads the Bible uh, through a lens, a lens provided by their family, culture, biases, life experiences, privileges, traditions, and so on. And I'm more willing to say now that texts themselves of the Bible 
could easily be read to authorize every one of those positions that uh, that the church wrongly took. Um, the Joshua slaughter everybody, you know, type passages uh, were read to justify mass slaughter and in conquest with the colonizers thinking of themselves as Israel and the locals, the Aboriginal peoples, as the Canaanites. Happened all the time. Mm -hmm. the, the passages, um, certain passages demeaning women, like women keep silent in the churches, and it, you know, it wasn't Adam who sinned first, but Eve, those passages were directly cited to get a tradition of Christian sexism. Uh, the anti-Semitism of the tradition was uh, was grounded in all kinds of New Testament biblical citations and then readings of Old Testament passages. Uh, and um, racism was a, was a little different, but most of the other uh, um, claims, well, slavery, slavery was, was both uh, taken as a matter of course uh, in the Old Testament and um, apparently ratified the New Testament you know, with Paul saying things like, slaves obey your masters. So the texts themselves are problematic, and all of the um, evidence is that the tradition of the church has routinely been wrong, and we cannot abstract ourselves. We are human beings who are interpreting creatures, and as Christians, we are part of a tradition that has routinely um, had damaging interpretations of passages, which they didn't come out of nowhere. In most cases, those, those passages were easily read in the way that they were. So another way to say it, Georgie, is that I have moved out of an evangelical self-identification since writing Changing Our Mind, partly because evangelical self-understanding and presuppositions are unable to, to move in the direction that I have just described. Given what you say about everybody comes to the Bible with a certain lens based off of who they are, what their experience is, what their culture is, etc., which which I fully agree with, but how do you reckon how do you then tackle the problem of how do you know what is truth? Like if if the Bible itself isn't the authority and we can't actually determine what it is actually saying to us and how it should be applied, then then what is the standard? Like, how do you find out what's true? Like, how do you know that you're right? Um, you don't know. Um, but it is the responsibility of every Christian, and especially of every Christian leader, to do the best that they can to read Scripture in such a way as to enable us to be faithful followers of Jesus. So, the goal is following Jesus faithfully. Um, and every means that we have to learn about how you do that, we need to deploy. And in fact, I'm writing a new book right now that's called uh, For the Post-Evangelicals, Where Do We Go From Here? And I'm, um, I'm dealing with these issues now, the kind of, when you find yourself in the post-evangelical space, how do, you deal, how do you deal with questions like, what is truth and how do you know it? And one of the things I'm arguing in this new book is there are many ways in which God wants to speak truth to us. Um, and these include the Bible, but also tradition and science and human reason and human experience. 
um, and arts and literature and anything that we are receptive to in which God might like to speak to us. This is the idea of general revelation. Um, so I do believe that God wants to speak to his people to guide us into faithful following of Jesus. Um, but that all that any of us here in the year 2019 are able to do is to offer an account of what faithful following of Jesus looks like. And we set that against other people's accounts. And there are certain tests like, uh, does it lead to love of God and neighbor? Does it lead to good fruit? Does it lead to human flourishing? Does it lead to life rather than death? Um, there are various kinds of uh, tests one can ask. In fact, that's frequently done on the LGBT question. The fact that traditional teaching leads to high degrees of suicidality, family dysfunction, uh, parents rejecting their own children, um, and so on, has to make one wonder about the fruit of that teaching, how that fits with Jesus. Um, but, but everybody is offering an account. Uh, we have convictions. Our convictions may or may not be right, but we, we go with the convictions that we develop through our best process of study, prayer, and reflection. And in the end, it is Jesus himself who will, who will render a judgment on our lives. And anybody who is 100% sure that they have the absolute truth because of their reading of the Bible, I think is not being adequately humble either about their own fallibility or about the fact that Jesus alone is the judge of our lives. Given what you just said about how God speaks to us through our experiences, through things that we read, people that we meet, etc., I often like to pose somewhat hypothetical questions on this podcast because it seems to get people thinking. If you lived in a different cultural moment, like let's say you lived 50, 60, 70 years ago, do you feel that you would have come to the same place in how you interpret the Bible and how you approach LGBT inclusion? Or would you just sort of have gone along with what everybody else was thinking at that time? Um, I think that most people, most of the time, go along with the majority opinion about most things. Um, it's a lot easier. Uh, it seems self-evident in most ways. And most people are not uh, wired for or have the energy for rigorous critical thinking. And so it's an interesting question. So you, you, one could look around and say, what are we taking for granted today that 70 years from now people will say, what? How could those people have thought that was okay? And sometimes you can see kind of comfortable majority opinion cracking about stuff, just kind of falling apart or beginning to be challenged. Like, for example, in 50 years, some people might say, how could those people have ever thought that football was okay? When you look at like, you know, brain injuries and, um, and all of that. I mean, you know, uh, and maybe, you know, there's the, the opinion that this is a routine, happy uh, amusement doesn't look quite as clear now as it did 10 years ago. Um, so I think the story that I told earlier about how um, for 14 professional years of my life, I didn't meet a single out gay person. Um, mm -hmm. That, in a sense, represented the world of 40, 50, 60 years ago with everybody so afraid of, uh, of rejection that everybody who discovered themselves to be LGBT hit, hid. 
they closeted themselves. Um, I don't know that my mind would have changed if I had stayed. In fact, it probably wouldn't have if I had stayed in such an oppressive environment in which everybody was closeted. Um, and, and so that was the environment of 50, 60, 70 years ago. I do think that the encounter of um, human beings uh, is pivotal. And so that's one reason why uh, one of the things that LGBT people say to one another is we must continue to, to tell our stories and come out to and come out because because it helps to force everybody else to deal with the reality of our lives. It takes a great deal of bravery too. So I mean, I acknowledge uh, I have undoubtedly still have blind spots affected by my culture. Um, I'm doing my best to follow Jesus faithfully, uh, and it's and um, there's always more to learn. So. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's the process that I'm in. Hopefully a lot of other people are in too. Since you have a somewhat unique perspective and having been on both sides of the issue, what do you think of, are there like a couple arguments from traditionalists that you identify as the worst, like like eye-rollingly bad? And then are there some arguments from people who are, um, pro-affirmation and inclusion that you also think are bad? And then on top of that, sorry, it's like a multi-layered question. <laughs> um, are there some arguments from traditionalists that you think are, are very challenging and persuasive? And then, of course, lastly, from the pro-inclusion people who are who are the most persuasive like what what do you make of both sides what are the highs and the lows yeah okay let's try that Uh, on the traditionalist side eye-rollingly bad um i would say arguments in which um people try to make claims about lgbt reality without actually talking to lgbt people um, you know, so what they're doing is they're psychologizing or theologizing um, wh- while, uh, you know, keeping a safe embargo distance from actual gay people. Like, you know, the older arguments, like everybody knows that any male who is gay uh, had a distant father or every woman who is lesbian uh, was hurt by a man or something like that. Um, so arguments that are not, that are just kind of not informed by the actual experiences and data of LGBT people. And also, um, I mean, eye-rollingly bad is hardly strong enough. There are still people, there are still people arguing for the death penalty for gay people um, based on on Leviticus. And um, there are gay people being killed and being subjects of legislation especially in Africa, um, based on the most ferociously harsh and contemptuous reading of those passages. So people literally die because of traditionalist, some forms of traditionalist Bible interpretation. And they also die because they commit suicide because, because they're 17 years old and their parents tell them, well, you know, you're going to go to hell if you don't change this. And they move to despair and they kill themselves. Um, 
So yeah, there's there's I mean, eye rollingly bad is hardly strong enough. On the on the positive side, or the best traditionalist argument is a gentle, you know, we love everybody, but you know, the genesis to Jesus double play of you know, the only sex that Jesus seemed to recognize was that between a man and a woman in marriage, and that's also what's in Genesis. That's still the hardest argument to overcome. Um, and it does, uh, it does require, you know, the kind of moves that I made. And still, I mean, I can, you know, I can see why a lot of people can't, can't get there. I, I can't. Um, on the uh, revisionist side, I would say the, um, the worst arguments are everybody who takes a traditionalist view just hates gay people. They're homophobic. Um, or everybody who takes a traditionalist view is a closeted gay person themselves. Um, so kind of a dismissal or they're prejudiced, uh, just, you know, so, you know, there is plenty of that out there, but the idea that that's the way to engage everybody who still is holding a traditionalist view, um, is deeply offensive to millions of people who still hold traditionalist views and who actually have reasons for their views that are based on deeply felt religious convictions and traditions and who are not hateful. They just are not affirming. Um, the best, the best view, uh, um, best articulation of the acceptance posture, basically, I think I've, I've tried to offer what I think is my best account. Um, mm -hmm. But, but I actually think sometimes the most compelling voices are LGBT Christians themselves. People like Matthew Vines and Justin Lee and Jennifer Knapp and um, a lot of other people here and around the world who tell their stories and then relate scripture to their stories in a way that has an existential depth and kind of personal feeling and personal integrity that... Um, that an ally like me can only marvel at. So I would say it's the stories from and the accounts offered by LGBT Christians themselves. You mentioned the, the Genesis to Jesus sort of um, frame as one of the, the strongest cases that traditionalists make, but what are some of the other big things that you think are holding evangelicals and traditionalists back from embracing inclusion? Is it, like you said, um, not knowing people personally who are LGBT, or are there other things as well? Um, it cannot be underestimated that in the most conservative Christian environments, families, K-12 schools, congregations, colleges, if you come out as LGBT or if you even say I'm struggling with my sexuality, sometimes the reaction is ferocious rejection. And so that does contribute to an environment where uh, people don't have to engage um, out, out gay people. And um, so that, I think, is holding, is holding traditionalists back. But, but you know what I think, actually... The question you asked earlier about what is truth and how do we know if we've got it is the main thing holding people back. I think that having been taught for decades both that the Bible alone 
is this is is where we get truth and that the bible clearly says this is ruled out and this is sin people are frightened that if they reconsider their view about homosexuality that they no longer have a certainty for knowing truth they're concerned that the whole house of cards is going to collapse right and and in fact it does happen that way sometimes um that people conclude wow i believed in the bible the bible taught this i think the bible is wrong i don't know what else to believe in my christianity cannot survive that discovery and so people end up leaving christianity and because other people are afraid of losing their faith they don't want to go down that road at all i remember a rather learned scholar saying in response to my book if what gushi is saying is right then 2,000 years of tradition and the Bible don't mean what we thought they mean, and therefore we don't, we don't have no idea whether we, anything we believe is true. And that is such a shattering fear that for a lot of people, they're just not willing to entertain the question because it's just too much. Too much can uh, can I ask which scholar said that out of curiosity? I believe that was Al Mohler at Southern Seminary. Uh, um, and... Um, he and I have engaged respectfully on this issue. We disagree, but um, but it's not an uncommon claim. Um, if the Wesleyan quadrilateral that, that came out of the Wesleyan tradition says the four main sources of knowledge are scripture, tradition, reason, and experience, and the Catholic Church basically goes with scripture and tradition, and the Protestants with scripture, with without maybe sometimes a nod to tradition. But if you if you challenge both scripture and tradition. As, uh, as I'm doing here, you're knocking at two of the main pillars, if not the only pillars, of how a lot of Christian people look at the world. And, um, and that is like uh, vertigo or nausea inducing for a lot of people. And so part of what I'm now trying to do is to help people to have a meaningful Jesus-centered faith that isn't so fragile and fragilely dependent on a particular reading of scripture and tradition so what's your elevator pitch for starting to for starting a conversation with an evangelical say on the concept of full inclusion in the church um for lgbt people what what would you say and and how would you how would you define to them what it means for them to be fully included in the church like what does that what does that mean exactly to you and do most um revisionists as you call them share basically the same vision of what that is you ask great questions um so thank you uh let's admit that the church has been wrong about gay people as it was wrong about women, slaves, black people, Jews, uh, Native Americans. Let's admit we got this wrong and make the changes here that we have made in other areas. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, that's a good elevator pitch. You could do that from floor one to floor three, I think. You know? <laughs> um, the, uh, the, what full inclusion looks like is that um, well, there's two ways to say it. One way to say it is that whatever standards you apply 
in the life of the church to straight people would apply equally to gay people. So if you are a church that um, has behavioral standards for membership or leadership, like husband of one wife, um, sexual fidelity, then uh, the same standard should apply to gay people, that sexual fidelity in a committed now marital relationship, as which because it's legal, um, would would be the standard. And another way to say it is that LGBT Christian people would it play by the exact same rules as straight Christian people uh, for becoming a member of a church, for becoming a leader in a church, for being ordained, or for getting married. But the only way you get there is if you is if you fully recognize that there is no taint of sin associated with same sex orientation um, or uh, or behavior. If you're, I mean, for me. Behavior is not anything goes behavior. Anybody can have sex with anybody whenever they want, but instead covenantal marital. So, um, by the way, this is something that's going wrong on the left is some people having jettisoned uh, one man, one woman for life, they're jettisoning a covenantal standard. And that's the problem that actually hurts the cause. So, in other words, gay person, here's a, here's a married uh, lesbian couple with a child. They get welcomed just like everybody else. And one of them shows great gifts as a teacher. They get to teach just like everybody else. And another one uh, uh, feels called to ministry. And whatever process you do for examining that call, you do the same for them as you would for a straight person. And somebody wants to get married. And whatever process you do to decide whether somebody gets married who is straight, you do the same thing for a couple that is gay or lesbian. It's just equality. It's just like uh, just like if a black person or a Hispanic person or a Native American person or a white person were to join a church, the rules are are colorblind. They don't. They're not. They're not adjusted according to race. And the same thing should be true related to sexual orientation. Final question: What advice would you give to people who have family members who have um, recently come out in terms of how do you like? this sort of roils a lot of families and I'm sure, you know, you can personally testify to that. How do people keep their families together and be respectful of the various opinions or is that even possible? I just opened a can of worms. Sorry. (laughs) Um, uh, my advice to family members is this when one of your family members comes out as some kind of sexual minority LGBTQ whatever um, they have done something that especially if they're in a Christian context conservative Christian context they have done something that was very very hard very hard very risky and they've been pondering it for a very long time um there's occasional exceptions to this, but usually it's after only a very long struggle. And the struggle is like, I'm going to die inside if I don't tell the truth about myself. But if I do tell the truth about myself, uh, they may reject me. So, my goodness, the first reaction needs to be something like, thank you for telling the truth about yourself and for trusting us with that. Uh, with that truth. That is precious. And... um and we are grateful. 
um, you will always be loved and accepted by our family. You are a part of our family the same way now as you were three hours ago before you told us this. Um, you will never be rejected by this family. Um, and then, hadn't, and then maybe there's something like this. I don't know, or we don't know what we think about all this. We've got a lot to sort out. But um, we'll go on that journey together. And um, what we're not having to sort out is whether you're going to be rejected. Because you're not. Um, we're going to have to sort out what does the Bible say and what do we do? And what about if you bring home a boyfriend or a girlfriend? And, but we have time for that. Um, but do know that our love for you is, un is unconditional and you are um, our beloved. That's what should be said. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, that's helpful. Dr. Gushy, thank you so much for this whole conversation and for joining me this morning. It's been really thought-provoking and challenging as I anticipated it would be, and that is exactly what this podcast is about. Um, so thank you. Well, thanks for wanting to have the conversation and thanks for really good questions um so yeah i'm glad to glad to be of whatever help i could be today and um i'm aware now of speaking for a great and alongside a great cloud of witnesses now hundreds or, or even several thousand lgbt people that i've met along the way who are pleading for full unconditional acceptance and um, i hope that maybe this could help some people get there you can keep up with what Dr. Gushy has been up to as far as Christian ethics is concerned at davidpgushy.com. That's G-U-S-H-E-E. -E. He hosts a podcast with Reverend Jeremy Hall called the Kingdom Ethics Podcast, which you can also find on that website. And of course, if you have thoughts on this episode or other episodes, you can call or text the flip phone at 323-999-1802. You can flip out. You can try to flip my position. You can tell me about your own flip-flop slash 180. That's 323-999-1802. And of course, you can catch up with the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at 180casts. And subscribe. Give the 180cast a quick review on iTunes if you appreciate this sort of conversation that really helps this podcast expand and grow the audience so we can have even more civil, respectful, um, informed conversations like these. You can follow me at Georgie underscore Borman, of course, on Twitter, where I talk about such riveting things as um, proper terminology for lawn care and super boring things like 2020 uh, presidential election politics. Also, I fully support the Oxford comma, so you've been warned if that is a touchy subject for you, I suggest that you stay away. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. In the middle of struggle, Lord, let me see Who I am, what I need, who I've got to In the middle of a struggle, Lord, let me see Who I am, what I need, who I've got to Executive producer, Kevin McCullough. Music by Ruthie Kraft and Joachim Nordenson. Who I've got In the middle of a struggle, Lord, let me see Who I am, what I need, who I've got to